Hello, uh, I'm uh, Seng Yang He. I am uh, a professor at Michigan State University and an investigator at Howard Hughes Medical Institute. This is a part two of my uh, eye biology talk. Um, in uh, this part of my talk, I want to uh, tell you some of our work um, involving Arabidopsis and the pseudomonas interactions. Particularly, I want to highlight uh, one aspect of our research, uh, illustrating how environmental conditions could uh, profoundly influence uh, disease development in plants. Um, so, as you know, when you look at the plants and grow in nature outside, uh, they not only uh, are you know, exposed to potential pathogens, but they're also are experiencing a lot of different conditions, temperature fluctuation, you know, from morning to evenings, uh, light, uh, as you can see here, uh, and the temperature, humidity, and microbiome even. We know that all of these factors actually influence uh, pathogen and plant interactions. Um, the molecular basis of this are not well understood. And so some famous scientists said, you know, without understanding environmental conditions, we will never understand the immunity and plants uh, uh, in, in, uh, in the plant system. So I'll just give you a couple examples how important the climate conditions could have for uh, plant disease outbreak uh, in the field. Uh, this is a bacterial fibroid disease uh, in apple. Uh, this is Switzerland. Uh, this is a 12-year span of disease incidence uh, from uh, 1995 to 2007. So apples are always grown in you know, Switzerland, and pathogens are always in this orchard. But you don't see a disease every year. And the reason is, uh, for disease to occur, you need a lot of humidity and the right temperature, right? So in 2007, and that year, you have heavy rain, high humidity in the spring when the apple was flowering, and these bacteria tend to infect the flowering birds. And so everything kind of comes at the same time, and then you have very severe diseases. Uh, so that's one example. Uh, another example uh, is called Fusarium, head right of wheat. This is actually a very uh, huge global disease uh, uh, right now. Uh, it's also favored by high humidity and warm temperature in the spring. So you can see that, uh, you know, normally you see a nice green uh, uh, crop of the wheat. In this uh, image, you can see uh, basically bleached uh, uh, grains. And there were four very severe epidemics in China in the last five years. So almost every year have very severe uh, disease. This disease also is very uh, serious because it, the, the, the fungus actually produce a toxin which make us sick. And so not only reduce the yield, but also uh, cause sickness in, in human population. Um, so uh, I want to tell you the plant diseases are really, uh, you know, problems uh, in, in modern agriculture. They're really uh, major threats to food security globally right now. Um, some of the diseases are very old. Uh, uh, on the left is a disease called rice blast, uh, a disease I actually grew up with when in China. I, I live in a village and, and, and 200 people or so. Uh, so, you know, I seen these uh, rice blasts when I was a really small little ch child. Uh, when I go back right now, uh, 40 years later, uh, I, I talk to my parents, and this is still number one disease locally, but also globally in rice production. Uh, so many old diseases continue to really uh, uh, pose major uh, problems. Now, you also have new diseases coming up. Uh, one example I'm giving to you here is a kiwi bacterial canker, which is caused by a bacterial pathogen called Pseudomonas ringi. I'm going to tell you uh, a little bit about that today. 
Uh, so this is despite all the chemical input, you know, pesticides, you have to spray them, farm has to use them, because otherwise you won't have, you know, really high yield. Uh, but also all the breeding efforts that uh, many uh, uh, scientists try to breed the resistant cultivars, you know, from wheat to rice, uh, uh, based on these called disease-resistant genes. Uh, um, but this is not enough, so because we have disease every year still, uh, one of the problems is we realize is that we really don't understand the basic process of disease, okay? Uh, so this is an area that we really want to uh, push your head. Uh, so uh, in the last 15 years or so, uh, you know, uh, many uh, laboratories, including us, are really concentrating on trying to work out the, why uh, disease occurs. And so this is an uh, overview of different kind of pathogens that can cause disease uh, in plants. So we have fungus, uh, we have bacteria, we have nematode, worms, uh, you know, and, and viruses. Many of these pathogens also cause uh, problems in our human bodies also. And so, one, so they look very different, but one of the common things they do is to deliver uh, these virulence factors, uh, collectively we call them effectors, uh, into the plant cell. Uh, and, and so uh, they use different ways of delivering these uh, virulence proteins. In the case of bacteria, they use a, a, a secretion system called type 3 secretion system you can see on the right, uh, a, a syringe-like structure here. Uh, if you knock out this uh, delivery system, bacteria become non-pathogenic. Okay? So that illustrates how important these virulence factors are to uh, causing diseases. So because of that, studying how effectors work uh, really uh, uh, can provide great probes into the molecular basis of disease susceptibility. Um, and uh, interestingly, these molecules, uh, microbial molecules, also can be very powerful probes into the uh, fundamental biology of the host. You know, it can be plants or it could be humans, because they usually find very intriguing uh, RNAs or proteins or DNAs to manipulate the host physiology. Okay, so uh, in a sense, this is a really great uh, probe into the biology of the host itself. Obviously, discover the target of these virulence uh, factors could offer new leads into innovative disease control we really desperately need right now. Um, so how do we understand disease susceptibility? What's the approaches? Uh, we and others are really following this very simple diagram here. We want to understand the uh, host target of all these uh, bacterial virulence proteins. So in the case of the bacteria we study, it has about, you know, 30 or so effectors. What we want to do, we means us and the many other laboratories, is really to identify these host proteins or RNA or DNA that are being targeted by these virulence factors. And we want to associate these host targets to these particular pathways. You know, I listed the five of them, A, B, C, D, E, but it could be 30, right? So uh, we don't know how many pathways are being targeted by bacterial uh, virulence factors. What we hope to do is to, once we identify these uh, pathways, we could genetically perturb uh, these pathways in the host, in this case, in the plant. And if we are successful, then uh, if we understood everything about the disease process, we can create a polymutant of the host, uh, in which these pathways are basically either activated or inactivated to simulate the collective activity of these uh, virulence factors. Uh, and then the, if we are really understood the process, then the, the polymutant of the host will be susceptible to a bacteria that we're not able to produce effectively. In another word, that if we manipulate the host already genetically to simulate the action of the virulence factors, you don't need these virulence factors to start with, right? Uh, until then, we will never know we understood the disease, okay? So that's the goal. It's very challenging, 
And, but by end of this uh, 20 minutes, I want to show you that we have made uh, progress towards that goal. So we use this very simple model system uh, involving Arabidopsis, which is a model plant, uh, and a bacterial pathogen called Pseudomostringi. Uh, it's a very common pathogen. Uh, it infects uh, virtually all crop plants in the field. Okay? Each individual strain of this uh, species, Pseudomostringi, infects very narrow range of hosts. So for instance, the strain DC3000 uh, in the field only infects tomato. Uh, in the laboratory, you can also make uh, it to infect Arabidopsis, okay? So, so uh, because Arabidopsis is a very, uh, you know, powerful model for plant research, so we have been working on Arabidopsis pseudomonas uh, model system for many years now. Pseudomonas can actually uh, live on the surface of the bacteria, uh, of the plants, uh, as an epiphyte, but in order to cause disease, it has to go into the interior of the leaf, in this case, okay? Uh, they go into the leaves through so-called Stomata. So these are microscopic pores on the leaf of dermis that allow plants to take up the CO2 to make food for us. Okay, so photosynthesis. It's very important. Okay, um, and once bacteria go into the uh, uh, inside the leaf, it lives in between the cells. Okay, so this is called mesophyll cells. So these are extracellular pathogens. Okay, so this space is called apoplast. Now I want to tell you that apoplast is normally filled with air. It's not filled with liquid. This is very important because CO2 has to go into the, uh, goes through the stomata into the apoplast, but it has to diffuse into the mesophyll cell and the chloroplasts. So it's a long distance for the CO2 to go in there. You don't want water in there because there will be a very uh, high resistance to CO2. So plant has a way of keeping that space mostly filled with air. I come back to this. It's actually very relevant to pathogenesis. So what we do in the laboratory to kind of have a disease assay is really to grow plants in a pot. Uh, we, you probably do this at home, not this style, but in another way. And then when they are four or five weeks old, uh, we would dip uh, the plants uh, entirely into the bacterial suspension and wait for basically three days, okay? You will see disease symptom as shown here. So I'm gonna play a movie which show you the time-lapse video of, uh, uh, of the infection process. On the left are the mark, uh, I mean, the bacteria infected the plants. On the right is a mark infection. This is the water, okay? So what you can see now, eventually, you can see the yellowing on the plants that are being affected. And uh, on the right are the ones that are moving, you know, they are alive, okay? You can see there are some plants that are kind of dancing of this thing you can see. Uh, but the infected plants are basically paralyzed, okay? So we actually don't know why plants are motionless. Uh, at very early on of the disease, this is some of the things we try to understand in the, in the next few years. Uh, so we have to work on several aspects of this disease uh, uh, process. For instance, we have a few years ago uh, figured out that the entry process, right, how bacteria uh, enter the uh, uh, plant tissue through stomata. For a long time, uh, scientists think they are passive because the stomata a pool are quite big and bacteria are kind of small. They can, pool has to be open for photosynthesis during the day. So we always thought bacteria can just take advantage of it, going to the tissue like passively, right? Uh, it, it doesn't turn out to be the case. It turned out these uh, gas cells, there two gas cells that form one uh, stomata uh, pool, they actually can sense bacteria. Uh, and so once they sense the bacteria, they close it as the first line of defense. 
to prevent any microbe entering the tissue. The plants are very smart, okay? So that's uh, about uh, a very intriguing mechanism of defending against pathogen invasion. Uh, we discovered one of the, um, so that's bad for back pathogen, right? It cannot even start the infection. So in this case of Pseudomonas syringae, it figured out a way to prevent that from happening by producing a toxin called coronatin, which prevents stomata from closing. And so the bacteria can massively infect uh, to start the infection. Uh, once the bacteria get into the mesophyll space, uh, as I mentioned before, it's extracellular pathogen, but it make a type 3 secretion system injecting 30 or so factors into the plant cell as a major weapon of pathogenesis. So we worked on this area as well. Uh, so we knew a little bit of these basic steps of this infection involving stomata entry, involving a toxin that prevented the uh, stomata from closing, and involving these uh, factors that uh, we think you know, is suppressing immune response in plants. Okay? Uh, work in the past few years and us and the many other groups that have deepened our understanding of these uh, basic steps. But also, in our case, we realize that we're missing two dimensions in the last you know, many years, actually. One dimension involves the profound effect of environmental conditions on the host pathogen interaction. So that's on the, um, the left circle here. We also start to realize that endogenous microbiome, the plant also has a microbiome, has tremendous effect on host pathogen interaction. So these are new directions. So I'm going to highlight one particular uh, area, which is involving how environmental conditions could influence disease uh, interactions, okay? So we are focusing on two areas. One is the temperature, uh, how elevated temperature could influence disease. This is actually very relevant right now with climate change. Uh, the, the, the globe is warming, but also, more importantly, the heat waves you're experiencing in different countries uh, very severe right now, and how this uh, short period of heat wave could influence infection, okay? So this is uh, one of my students, uh, Bethany Yard, recently published a paper just showing very simply, you can see that on the, we grow plants the same way, okay? But during infection, we put the plants in 23 degrees, which is the normal temperature, or you shift five degrees up, 28 degrees, you can see dramatic difference already. Uh, at warm temperature, you see much more severe disease, okay? She discovered this is based on two mechanisms. One is the warm temperature actually enhances greatly the virulence uh, expression. So the effect of secretion into the plants are greatly uh, enhanced. But also, she discovered that the immune signaling in the host is completely shut down. So this is actually very important in the field, you know? The immune pathways that she was working on is called salicylic acid signaling, which is mimicking the aspirin we take sometimes. It's a similar chemical. Boosts the immune response. This response is shut down by warm temperature. This could have a profound influence in the field, crop resistance, because most of the crop resistance is based on their signaling cascade. So we don't know the detail of this pathway. This is something we're going to work out in the next few years. What I'm going to talk to you about in more detail is uh, humidity effect on plant disease, okay? This became actually obvious in our disease reconstitution experiment I mentioned at the beginning of my talk. We tried to figure out how many pathways are being uh, manipulated by the bacterial pathogen and ultimately want to create a polymutant of the plant to see whether we can rescue the pathogen genesis of a uh, bacteria that does not, you know, deliver any of these effectors, okay? So that's a very daunting task, as, but we, as scientists, we want to... Uh, face the challenge and try to work it out. Um, so 
Uh, there are 30 or so factors I told you in this particular bacterium. So we and others are systematically going through to identify host target of each of these factors, okay? A model that we and others uh, have developed in the last, you know, 15 years or so uh, about the function of these effectors uh, are this in a simple way. So you're seeing a bacteria sitting uh, on the plant cell wall. So plant cell, unlike animal cell, has a cell wall surrounding it. But in the plasma membrane, uh, which you can see there are receptors, uh, it's called immune receptors, that perceive these uh, patterns from my uh, microbe. In this case, flagella, these wavy things, uh, very common for bacteria. And once they sense these uh, molecules, it then triggers a signal transduction pathway. This is a very simple diagram, eventually leading to a form of uh, immunity called pattern-triggered immunity. So uh, this is bad for bacteria. So what bacteria is doing is to send these effectors into the plant cell to attack different steps of this signaling cascade to shut down this form of uh, immunity as a major mechanism of disease. And so I'll just give you one example uh, from a collaborative work from Cielo Zipfels group and my uh, laboratory also involving a particular factor called HOP801. Uh, HOP801 biochemically is a phosphatase which remove uh, phosphate from proteins. And it turns out these immune receptors are phosphorylated normally during activation at the tyrosine residue of the protein. And this effect actually removed the phosphate from tyrosine to shut down this immune activation. So this is a very cute way of, you know, bacteria figure out how to kind of uh, uh, subtage the uh, immune signaling. And the many studies to support this, very strong evidence this is really true. So one of the major functions of these virulent factors are to shut down the plant immune response, right? If there's no immune response in the host, then you can infect the plants. And this is very similar to human pathogenesis, and many of the bacterial pathogens or human pathogens actually do the same thing. They're shutting down the immune system in our body, they infect, okay? So our question is this, are all these studies also factors involved in immune suppression? If they are attacking, you know, immune suppression, then uh, we can reconstitute the disease by using the immune compromised plants, right? So I'm coming back to point, that point later. Uh, I'm going to introduce you to uh, two bacterial strains now. I'm talking about the Y-type strain, DC3000. It secretes these 30 or so effectors into the plant cell. There's a mutant called Delta-28E, uh, which has 28 of these 30 effectors deleted. It has uh, involved a lot of work uh, done by Alan Comer's lab at uh, Cornell University, so, but they did it, so it's a very useful mutant. We take advantage of this mutant. Because this mutant has essentially no effectors, uh, that delivered into plant cell is non-pathogenic. So if you put it into a Y-type plant, you can see that on the left is infected by DC3 cellulose. It causes disease-like symptom. But on the right is green. It's a healthy plant. So this mutant cannot cause disease in the Y-type plant. If, as I said, all effectors are attacking the immune uh, uh, signaling, then if we start with an immune defective plant, that there's no immunity in this in the plant, then this mutant Delta-28E should be able to infect the, the plants, right? Okay, so that's the experiment we did. You can see that, uh, unfortunately, the, the Delta-28E mutant unable to cause disease. You know, the plants are still kind of green after infection, okay? The mutant we use, uh, uh, FAC and BBC, these are defective uh, immune response in the plants. So the answer is no, okay? So you can also look at the bacterial population. So when the uh, plants are infected by uh, Pseudomonas syringae, it multiplies really high. So this is the bar is in the log, uh, log tank scale. So each um, step is tenfold increase. You can see that DC3 cell aggressively multiply inside the leaf. 
versus the uh, Delta 28E in wild type and the mutant uh, uh, leaves, they're unable to achieve to very high population. So there's no disease. So answer is no. Um, so the question is, what are we missing, right? So some effectors must be attacking something other than immunity as a part of the mechanism. So um, I'm going to pull you away from my uh, our own results to tell you something about website. So if you're growing plants in your garden, this is actually for master gardeners. So any, anything written on this website must be true <laughs> because you have to follow that. Okay, so you can see that uh, I just took a few sentences out. Uh, it says bacterial diseases are most intense in warm and humid conditions, like Florida. Okay, so Florida actually has a lot of diseases compared to California. California is dry. Um, and you can recapitulate. This is actually a famous called disease triangle dogma. For disease to occur, you not only need a, a plant which is susceptible genetically, or a, a pathogen which is virulent genetically, but you also need a conducive environment. One of the main factors is high humidity, okay, rains and things like that. Uh, this was formulated by a very famous plant pathologist, R.B. Stevenson, 50 years ago. We actually don't know the molecular basis, why high humidity is required for disease very much. Uh, you can recapitulate the humidity requirement in the laboratory. Basically, you can grow plants you know, for four weeks, but during the uh, infection uh, period of three days, you either place the plants in high humidity, like 95%, uh, which simulates the disease uh, outbreak condition in the field, or you, uh, you know, set the plants at 30 degree, which is uh, uh, low humidity. You can see that high, and only at high humidity you have disease, low humidity plants look healthy. And you can look at the disease uh, uh, bacterial population also. High humidity has very high population and a lower um, uh, humidity uh, very low, okay? So it's a dramatic uh, differences, okay? Now, you go back to this website, you can also see a term called Wassel King. This is describing the symptom of the disease of many bacterial diseases. Uh, normally, if you look at leaves in your backyard, you will see kind of, you know, uh, green, okay? There's no spots, right? In this picture, you can see there's a lot of dark spots. These dark spots are caused by liquid in the leaf. And plants don't like that. I just told you in the beginning, for photosynthesis to occur, for CO2 to diffuse into the metaphor cell, you want to keep apoplast uh, air filled. In these dark spots, there's liquid in there. It's really bad for plants. But bacteria seems to be able to do this for a purpose. We are, so this phenomenon has been observed for many decades. Uh, don't know whether it's needed for pathogenesis, okay? So we were intrigued by this. Uh, this only occurred in high, high humidity also. So you can simulate this process in the laboratory. This is a rhabdopsis, again, infected by um, uh, Pseudomonas syringi. You can see dark spots here on the right leaf, which is infected. On the left, it was not infected. Uh, this also occurring tomato, because this bacteria also infected tomato. So on the high humidity, you have this called a wall-soaking symptom. Now we can label bacteria to see where a bacteria are in the infected tissue by uh, holding it with a lux, you know, you can have lux uh, emit light, uh, allow bacteria to emit light. So you can catch the uh, light emitted from bacteria uh, in the infected uh, tissue. And then you overlay this with water-soaking symptom you capture with regular light. If you see in the bottom of the left leaf, you can see extensive overlap between the uh, lux, the light indicating bacteria and the uh, water-soaking uh, spots, suggesting it's the uh, water-soaked area is where bacteria multiply really highly. Okay, so they're really spatially kind of indicating wasoking is quite important. Uh, so what causes wasoking? 
Okay, I told you this bacteria produce 30 or so effectors. We actually screened each individual effectors to see which one can cause wasoking. In this experiment, we showed that two of them can cause wasoking, and the names are very, not very important, but I can show you that one is localized to the plant uh, plasma membrane here, one is localized to actually endomembrane system in the plant cell called the endosome, which is involved in recycling all the proteins to and off the plasma membrane of the plant cell. So that two, do, these two effects are doing something to the plasma membrane of the plant cell to cause wasoking. Uh, we actually know a little bit more about one of these effectors they actually attack a protein in the plants that regulates the vesicle traffic. So it's a, it's a really intriguing phenomenon also because a lot of human pathogens also do that, attack proteins that are uh, involved in vesicle trafficking in our human cell as a way to shutting down the immune system. Okay, so, uh, so now we have, in addition to the immune suppression process, we discover a new process we call aqueous apoplast, which is inside the leaf, accumulating basically water and other, other things, okay? So uh, in order to you know, cause wasoking, you need the so-called wasoking effectors from bacteria, but that's not sufficient. You also need the high humidity in the air. The reason is that in the low humidity, even if bacteria are producing a wasoking symptom, it will be evaporated through stomata because stomata open during the day for, to take up CO2, and, and because of that, if you have low humidity, the water just comes right out. And because there's no water, then the bacteria will not benefit. So here's an example of we need virulence factors in the bacteria, but we need external environment to be humid. Okay, so this is uh, kind of interesting. Um, so now the question, next question we ask is, okay, we have two processes now. Uh, we know the immune suppression is not sufficient for pathogenesis. Now we have two. Are they sufficient now for pathogenesis? Uh, so this is a disease reconstitution experiment we always wanted to do. So uh, we can simulate the suppression of uh, immune response in the plant by using this uh, uh, mutant of Arabidopsis that unable to mount the immune response. We can also mimic the water accumulation in the apoplast by using this uh, new mutant that we have called Ming-7, okay? The idea is to combine these two processes by genetically uh, manipulating the two pathways using CRISPR-Cas9 technology. We uh, created quadruple mutants, basically affecting both immunity and water uh, homeostasis. So the question is that in these quadruple mutants uh, with bacteria that normally cannot deliver any effectors is going to multiply or not, okay? So this is the experiment we did. So the bacterial mutant we use is the bacteria that are unable to secrete any of these effectors, that defecting types of secretion, okay? In the white type plants, they don't cause disease. It's green plants. Uh, in this uh, immune defective mutants, it still does not cause disease. I showed you before, okay? So it's not uh, sufficient. In the MIN7 plant, also it does not cause disease. In the quadruple mutants, now you can see disease-like symptoms. And this is actually anyone has seen a non-pathogenic bacteria cause any disease on a plant system. So this is pretty exciting to us. If you look at the bacterial population in these uh, leaves, you can see that the red bars indicating the quadruple mutants. Only in these two quadruple mutants, you can start to see the multiplication of an otherwise non-pathogenic bacteria, okay? So, it's not to extend to the white type infection, so we have some distance to go, but this is a quite significant step. Uh, so summarize this uh, part of my talk. Uh, we have identified a new pathogenic process involving uh, we call the aqueous living space. Uh, we know bacteria lo loves water because, you know, uh, 
human pathogens and plant pathogens all love water, right? So, uh, but this is a case where bacteria actually create water condition in otherwise uh, uh, air-filled space. And you can think about whether this is relevant to, you know, other disease, including human disease like the lung infection and respiratory uh, system, which is normally filled with air. So we'll see whether this principle goes beyond plant diseases, okay? Uh, we were able to reconstitute uh, the basic feature of a bacterial infection using exclusively host mutants, okay? So that's uh, also the first time we do this. Of course, we're getting some insight into why humidity could have profound influence on the disease uh, interactions. Uh, in this case, because it's required for the virulence factors to function as the virulence factors. Uh, so now I'd like to acknowledge the people who actually did the work. Of course, my uh, lab members at Michigan State. Uh, and I also want to acknowledge uh, a number of collaborators, uh, Jeff Chang, Cyril uh, Ziffel, uh, also other uh, investigators that I collaborate with other uh, part of my uh, talk. Uh, funding are from HHMI, uh, Gordon Betty Moore Foundation, NIH, DOE, uh, USDA, and uh, National Science Foundation. Thank you.